We are starting a brand new series called Reset. And what, I, and what was on my heart for this and what I, what I really would love for us all to be, have a chance to experience is that as God gets us ready for what's next for us, next for us as a community and as in, in our families and as individuals, he's also preparing and resetting and getting us ready. He does not send us out malnourished with no stretches. He gives us that time. There was a, there's numerous studies that show the same stats across the board. 80% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks. 80%. And that's all of them. That's, easy. that's the easy ones. And so that 20% is probably someone who is like, I'm going to drink one less cup of coffee every nine weeks. I mean, we're talking all of them, 80%. And so there's been a lot of groups that have studied what happens with that. Because they'll look at it and they'll find everything should be there for it to succeed. There's a few things that work when people make a commitment, and one of them is group commitment. When, when there's a large group that's doing something at the same time, the success rate goes up. And so this is, uh, for all of the terrible things one must go through for CrossFit, that's the strength, is you do it with a team. Uh, and with, the, with New Year's resolutions, there should be the sense of teamwork that should empower it, and yet it is a massive uh, failure train. New Year's resolutions falling like the first lines on Normandy. It is incredibly slow to get them going. So they research, they try to figure out what's happening. And what they found is uh, the, the leading thing, uh, at least for one group they studied, was this. They said, uh, the study concluded that everybody who failed uh, what they really failed at doing was to first enhance their capacity to either sustain motivation or handle the inevitable stress and discomfort involved in change. There wasn't this preparing. It's almost this, if only saying it could make it so. If just going and doing it, the, the, the kind of getting ready for the big journey didn't happen. Uh, we, there, there's something so important to training for what we're going to do and being ready for it. We've, uh, we've seen this happen, and if you're a Portland Trailblazer fan, you've seen it at least twice. Twice, at least, Portland has bravely shot itself in the face in the draft so that someone else could get a great player. We took Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan. Learning our lesson, a few years later, we took Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. And uh, Greg Oden is one that I was familiar with because I was so excited. That's the only time that I remember being a Blazer fan and watching us get the first draft pick. He had a nickname in time called Glass Man because he was constantly breaking down. He was falling apart and he was getting hurt and it was really difficult to see. And I don't hate the guy. He has paid so much for the hardship. He went through the, the kind of pain he goes through, what he said in interviews of just how he feels about himself. And in time, he admitted something because he was actually a phenomenal college player. He should have been great. and He was, he was bulletproof. What he said is that when he got in, the, the celebrity, the NBA lifestyle, it came to a point to where he did not prioritize training. He didn't prioritize his health. He spent far too much time partying and far too much time drinking and smoking weed. At least he smoking weed. Maybe that's not fair to say. He at least was drinking. Don't let me slander poor Greg Oden. He's gone through enough. But it was interesting that his falling apart had to do with this lack of preparation. Now, God is good to us. He is very good. And whether we realize it or not, he does prep us for what's ahead. He is too faithful to you for you to face things and for him to put you into places where something didn't prepare you for that, whether you realized it or not. 
failures and setbacks, hard times, the little things that you learned along the way that seemed like a pithy thought, but then one day make a lot of sense and it changes your life. He makes sure that he's with us. The calling uh, that he is calling us to tomorrow, he's forming us for today. And it's important for us to be aware of that, to have the visual sight for it, that we wouldn't buck against the reins anymore, but be people who are awake and available to be trained. As we go through this series, it would be important for us to ask ourselves a few questions, questions like, what steps of formation am I skipping right now? What things am I not valuing? And do I appreciate the moment for what it is that I'm not being ignored? We're going to read a story today. We'll talk about it a bit, but we're going to start in Luke chapter 2, picking up in verse 41. This is one of the few stories, very few, of Jesus' childhood. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while, he was, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed, amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Of all the things he went through, it's a human experience. He was totally shamed by his mom. Uh, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. Then he went down to Jerusalem with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God, <clears throat> excuse me, with God and man. There's a couple of things to clarify with this story that are odd. And uh, maybe it's not the most important thing to go over, but there's two odd questions. One... How do you lose your kid in the first place for a day when you're traveling? And two, why did it take three days to find him? Uh, first off, we have to understand caravan travel. It was really expensive to hire guards, so the best thing to do is to find a whole bunch of friends and family, typically neighbors, that were traveling at the same time. The law of Moses said that you had to travel to Jerusalem for one of three festivals, and so to not crowd Jerusalem, certain regions traveled at certain times. And so we can imagine that Joseph, with his family and with his neighbors, all traveled together and left. We know that Jesus was 12, which in their society is the equivalent of 17. It's the year before you become a legal adult. And so it is, it is more than... Under, uh, something we could imagine that they would think he is old enough, he's with his cousins or his relatives, he's in the back, especially because uh, they probably had other kids at this time. And so they have little kids to take care of. Jesus is going to do fine. He's probably not gotten in trouble yet, so he's trustworthy. Uh, it takes three days because it's, if you read it, especially in the original language, we find out that Luke seems to intend that we count from the day Jesus was last accounted for. And not that they, what it sounds like, they arrived in Jerusalem. It took them three days to search a city roughly the size of downtown Sandy. And so what it is, it's three days. So day one, they leave. He's not with them. Day two, they travel all the way back, and they find him the next morning. And so it's just, uh, 
It's probably worth understanding those things. And there's a certain theme of doing things in the proper time. Because of the caravan traveling thing, there's an interesting little fact. They would get everything together, and forgetting stuff happened all the time. People were just like us. They forgot things. So they would travel, and the first day they would pack everything up, took forever. They would travel not quite as far as they would the next day because they were going to stop, unpack everything, go through it, make sure they have everything, because if they forgot, traveling one day is a lot better than traveling multiple days. And so it is, it's something that goes without being said, because we don't travel in caravans like this, that the original audience would have understood when they read this gospel. They found him at the time when you searched to see if things were missing. And it begins this theme in the passages where we see things happening in their proper time. Jesus and his family go to Jerusalem at the appointed time. He feels that he is in the appointed place. And he is in the temple. Now, it's a, when he's in the temple speaking with these teachers, it, there's nothing in this that's intended to say that he's asking questions of them uh, to question them like he does later on. Jesus asks some very confrontational questions later on, but rabbis taught through questions and answers. It was, a, it was a form they used. In fact, we read when Jesus speaks to someone, they come and they say, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus replies with a question, what does Moses say? And they have these questions back and forth. It's like they're playing a game of spiritual jeopardy. This is the way they taught. So for Jesus, he is not being a teacher. He's being a student. They're in the porch, they're in the colonnade, doing what was appropriate at the right time because this was a normal thing. The teachers of the law would go sit at one place in the temple and it was a Q&A time where anybody could come and ask questions. They'd help people comprehend, understand the law, and understand the commentaries on the law. He's doing the proper thing again at the proper time. And he's interacting with thoughtful conversation, asking questions that are astonishing everybody. It is impressive, the questions he's asking, but they're questions asked by a student. And everything in its proper time. I told you that 12 was the equivalent of 17. I see it at age 13, a Jewish boy was going to be held accountable to keeping the law of Moses. Until then, it was all free. Uh, you could break it, apparently, and you were fine. Uh, there is a commandment not to eat bats. Until you're 13, you could eat a bat and you'd be fine. So if you didn't know that, you had no idea how righteous you are. You, all these years, you've been living by that law, righteously and wonderfully, avoiding succulent bats. That temptation is out of our lives by the power of God. At 13, he's going to be held accountable. So at 12, it was this expectation, and boys would work like they're getting ready for the SATs of working on concentrated study all their life. Like their first word was probably Moses, not Dada. They are trained in the law, but when they are 12, they are taking it to an extreme level, studying deeply, asking questions. The incarnation is a miraculous thing because... At age 12, it's time to buff up on the law because you're going to keep it. Jesus is the word incarnate. That's what John tells us. Everything revealed in Scripture is revealed in Christ, and he is those things. And this is one of the things that makes the incarnation of Jesus so amazing, is he doesn't become human in just a technical sense that he has flesh and blood, but he becomes human in that he takes on the weakness of humanity. And he does things as a human. 
He learns and grows and matures as a human. He was not born with a cheat sheet and he was just an adult at a young age. He went and played with kids. When he scraped his knee, he probably let it heal on its own with the scab. He does these things because it is incredibly important that when God is God incarnate, that he will live and be human. And it's because it's such a powerful image to us that if Jesus needed in the proper time to be built up and matured and trained for what he was going to do ahead of him, then we need the same. Jesus lived the full breadth of humanity, Scripture tells us. He was everything we are for one difference, though. He was without sin. His character and his nature was holy, and that is what set him apart. But he learned like us, thought like us, felt like us, matured and even grew like us. It's so important to remember that Jesus needed times of training and formation. He was 30 years old by the time he started his ministry. For 30 years, he looked like a carpenter's son. For 30 years, he lived a normal life to be ready for that moment. He needed formation, and he took that on. It's important for us to know this because something inside of us is like that rabbit on Alice in Wonderland. And we run around everywhere saying, I'm late, I'm late, so very terribly late. No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. That if God needs to coach me and train me, if I need time to go with him and to learn and to be built up, it means that I'm not ready and I failed the test. When I went into uh, college, the first thing I did was to take an exam to see if I needed the first level of writing in, in English. There's two classes. And the first thing I did is I didn't pass it. And so for me, I felt like I, the very first thing I did in school, 100% at that point was failure. I had to take the English class. Turned out it was great. I loved it. it was, and, I, and I needed it. I, I was much better at communicating after taking that class. But we need formation, and sometimes we feel like God is taking time that is slow, and we're not ready for it, and we need all this coaching, and we feel like we are the one that fell behind. I felt like I was progressing pretty well along in my life, especially through uh, like high school. There's, there's these certain checkpoints when you get stuff done. I got my license when I was 16. I didn't wait forever. And I graduated when I was 18, on time. And then out of that, I immediately enrolled in school that, that August, or the, uh, yeah, in August, and started in the fall, and graduated on time, got my bachelor's in four years, was hired on here as a youth pastor, and it seemed like things were going just fine. But something happens, because when you're young, there's these really clear checkpoints of you do this, you do this, and you do this, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. But once you're holding the college degree or you just decided to go do something else other than college, once you get to that point when the checkpoints leave, existential crisis time. <laughs> because there is no longer these really set clear things to do. There's no set time to get married, to start a family. I found that I enjoyed things and I felt like things were on time and I was proud of my life being a youth pastor for a long time until I felt I had been there for a little too long. And I started to feel like I need something to show for this time. Maybe youth group needs to be bigger, more influential. Maybe I shouldn't still be here. And I started to feel this, this pressure of that quiet time, of that difficult time. Things that, things were, when I first started with youth group, it was really, it grew really fast. 
And then that sucker crashed. And we had to relaunch it again. I've done that three times. And it, it, it just every time it felt like I should be further along than this. And I remember nights driving home after I'd been there for several years. I was driving home at the end of the night and I thought there was a time. And I was praying to God. I said, there was a time this was fun and I felt great about it. And I liked doing it. It made me feel good about myself. And God, that time is over and it's not fun anymore. I feel like a fool. I feel like I've been here too long. I feel like I'm behind. But if you want me to go back next week and do it again, I'm going to do it, but I'm only doing it for you. It is not for me anymore. This is not fun. I'm telling you, prayers like that, to work out of my character, the egotism I started with, to feel that the success of the youth group was something on me, the, the egotism to be the central person, those kind of broken moments is when the Holy Spirit is taking this jackhammering tool to your life and chipping off things that the people you're called to serve next shouldn't have to deal with in you. That the students that were coming in a few years, the last thing in the world they needed was a youth minister that was thinking about the value they would add to himself. They really needed someone who was gone through some breaking times and difficult times and realizes that I do this for someone else. And if he loves those kids, then I'll love them too. Those quiet and very lonely years were unwittingly chipping off problems for myself. I won't use any names, and I, I'm going to use an example that's not in the Oregon area, so no one even knows who I'm talking about. But there were contemporaries of mine that were youth pastors that had a different, different path in mind. A lot of success, huge growth, and it has been repulsive to me to hear the way they talk, to see the character that comes out of them. And there's been things to where I just, you almost feel sick. Like, I can't imagine the kids that are in this individual's wake of pain and wounds and feeling like they were just a number. Uh, there's issues there. And I never thought I'd be at a point where I would be thanking God. Thank you so much, God, for the lonely, quiet years where I was humbled, where I failed, where I gave up for myself, because the arrogance every time gets between you and God. And if I ever got to a point to where my own joy got, my ego got in the way of my relationship with God, it would have been a poor trade weird things at the time. I never would have thought all the garbage I'm going through and the pain and the crash and the lifting up, it was forming and it's doing something in me. These quiet years that I feel like I'm wasting, I should be doing more with my life, I should be doing more for God, was an incredibly critical time. I think of the message translation of Lamentations in 3.25 says, God proves good to the man who patiently waits, to the woman who diligently seeks. It is a good thing to quietly hope and quietly hope for the help of God. It's a good thing when you're young to stick it out through hard times. God forms us in a time when we are going to feel like we're unseen, that we're hidden, that we are behind, that people are taking off, and they're all on the bus, and we're still at the bus stop. And I think it's remarkable that Jesus did not feel that way. He was okay doing what a 12-year-old is supposed to do and growing in that way that in the proper time he was training and preparing and he was not discouraged by this. 
And we see this so clearly on a play on words that doesn't exist in English. That's why a lot of our Bibles put a little letter and give us some understanding of what's being said here. It's when he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And it's this, it's this play on words in Greek that could mean in my father's house or of my father's business. Didn't you know I would be doing the work of the father, that I would be doing these things as the son, I would be doing what the father would have me do. He felt and he was convinced and he was very right that he was living his messianic calling as he prepared for it. That as he sat on the colonnade and asked questions and was formed in being a student, he was being the Messiah. That he was living that out. You are preparing for the calling God has for you when you're being formed. And my hope would be is that we could have the kind of spiritual eyes like Jesus, that we'd be able to see where I'm at, appreciate to have the peace that we could, that we could know we are not forgotten, we're not behind, we're not lacking. God is still working in us for the things that are ahead. Something, this, this truth is not for just the young, it's for everyone. You could be 100 years old and God's preparing you for things you'll do when you're 101 right now. Working in things, changing new things that are coming in. Building us up. He is not teaching, he's learning. Learning what he'll teach from later. Sometimes, you know, we read scripture and we, we go away thinking, ah, I got nothing. I read it today and it was just a whole bunch of words. Okay. And, we, and it's a mistake we can make because we can almost treat scripture like it's some sort of daily horoscope. Like it will say exactly what I needed to know today. Today I'm worrying about how I'm going to pay the electrical bill. And this is a whole bunch of stuff about who came with Ezra when he left Persia. That's useless to me. But then a few years goes by and you find this amazing moment when you think to yourself, wow, those people that came with Ezra were going to a temple that was destroyed to rebuild it and to do something they thought was long dead and gone. For 70 years, they sat still, and in one day, they get a letter, and they set off. Why do I feel like God's plans will progressively come into my life? They typically come like a storm in the night, like the message that came to all those names that are recorded. Sorry, I love Restoration Lit, and it's a section of Scripture where they come back, and it's always exciting. We, when we read Scripture, we are not reading stuff that is always going to pertain to that day. But it's pouring in, like, like pouring in a foundation that something will be built on. Something that God is wanting to build. You need those things to be built up in you, even if it didn't mean anything today. Not everything Jesus asked was probably all that interesting to the life of a 12-year-old. But he learned the law through and through that when he asked questions later, they were of a, of a mind that comprehended, knew, and was the law. We read scripture to build for the future. The things that it's putting in us today are for the months that are ahead. If you want to spiritually starve yourself in July and August and September, then don't read the Bible today. When we read today, it's feeding the weeks, months, and years ahead as we are preparing and suddenly something comes to us as we get filled. And like Jesus, he learned it and learned it and learned it. He became it. We want to do the same. We want to learn, learn, learn until we become those things. 
It might not feel like some sort of triumphant arrival, but formation is sneaky. It can feel like it makes no sense. It is so odd later when we encourage people the stories we tell of the things that didn't seem that they were encouraging, that the terrible day you had with your kids when you lost your temper and you screamed at them and you never thought today's the day that that story is going to just brighten someone's life. God forms us in all kinds of ways, and we need to have some peace knowing he's at work. We're always so anxious to see God on the move, but do we realize he's on the move now? He's not just going to be faithful when you're living out this calling. He's being faithful to that calling ahead of time today as he prepares you for it. And this passage ends, and will end today, with his obedience. It says that he went down to Nazareth, which is actually technically up. It was north, but everything from Jerusalem is down. If you didn't know that, that's a, a, a Jewish thing. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And in that time when he was obedient, the rest of his childhood is summed up with he grew in wisdom and stature in the favor of both God and men. This passage ends with his obedience. I have found that formation happens in the posture of obedience. Obedience to God and obedience to the authorities that he subjected you to. A rebellious spirit is not one that is good for growth, but it's obedience and humility. My last Bible college story today is this. When I graduated, I thought when I held that degree in my hand, I had gone through a threshold, student to teacher. I could teach the Bible now. And it's been, gosh, 12 years since I graduated. Ongoing learning, ongoing reading, learning more in that time than I did in those four condensed years. And I've decided not to think that way anymore. I am not a teacher. There came a point where I needed to get out of the teaching seat and go get back to my student desk. I am a student of God's word. And when asked and when prompted by God, I'll be willing to relay something that I learned. Because for me, I find that humility and submission is the place where God really, truly, deeply forms us. And even when Jesus begins his ministry, it starts as he transitions out of this obedience. A wedding in Cana, his mom comes to him. They've run out of wine. Can you help out? He says, I really don't think I should. And she kind of pulls the mom card on him, and he does it. And then he starts teaching the kingdom. Then he calls his disciples. We see this obedience so critical in his life. It should also be critical in ours of obedience and humility, because we can be so deaf to the process when we're not submitting in humility. We want God's leadership, but if he indwells with us, he is going to be Lord. He's going to be in charge. Should we graciously wake him up and then not tell him? Joseph, you did it last time. Do it again. I'm just going to keep going so he doesn't know. Not because we want him to indwell with us, but if he indwells with us, he is Lord. And not because we're behind, but because we're doing the right thing to do. Maybe you're 12. Maybe it's time to buff up on the law so you're ready for 13. Maybe you've got things God's calling you to, and it's time to understand a deeper message of God's grace and his mercy on people's lives. And we get such an easy example. Let's mimic Jesus. 
It's the same thing we do every single day. We'll just copy what he did. He did what he was meant to do in the right time. He didn't buck against it. He was submitted to the process. He didn't get anxious and worry that he was one day not going to be the Messiah. He was confident in who he was. He knew exactly who his father was. And he knew that in this moment when I'm just learning and I'm just sitting here, I'm sitting in a temple that they don't even know was built for my glory. I will learn and I will be humble and I will be built up. And I am not being wasting my life or wasting my time. Because forming matters as much as the doing because God loves you too much to watch you spoil your life on arrogant character. Let's pray. Lord, today I ask that your spirit would be blowing on our spirit, bringing it life, bringing it um, health and perspective. Lord, help us to see where are you working in us now? Lord, if you are convicting us to get deeper into your word, to let it form us more and more, that we would be friends formed by your word, that we would be family members formed by your word, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, who do things that are formed by you. Lord, help us to submit that we would have the spirit like Jesus had in his humility to learn your word, to be formed in it, built up in it, that we could be ready for our calling. God, I pray for those who feel condemned. They feel like they are so far behind. They feel like their life is an embarrassment to present to you. Lord, I pray that you would show them that you form in quiet moments. That it isn't until we have come out of the valley that we realize what you did back there. So Lord, give us faith for the life we live in right now the life we sometimes hate, the life we sometimes regret. Let us hold on to you to make decisions every day, to stay close to you, to be formed by you, that we'd be ready for the life that's ahead. Reset, retrained, rested, ready to go and filled with your wisdom. Help us reset in the coming weeks. In your name we pray, amen.